0: Acts chapter 15, verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. We're told certain men came down from Judea. Later in the chapter, we're going to learn that these men were believers from the sect of the Pharisees. Also note that everyone went down from Judea. This is not a directional uh, cue. Antioch, where they came to, is obviously north Um, of Jerusalem, but at the same time, the higher elevation of Judea, Jerusalem, meant that everyone went up to the city and everyone went down from the city. It's kind of how the geography worked. These men that come to Antioch, they were pharisaical Jews who had accepted Jesus as their Messiah, but had also decided to remain dedicated to the particulars of the law of Moses. They travel 300 miles from Jerusalem, from Judea, to Antioch, and we're told that they come with a purpose. They come in order to teach the brethren that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You know, sadly, these men are often classified as legalists. If a liberal is someone who takes from Scripture, a legalist is someone who adds on top of Scripture, someone who takes more than what the word says and heaps upon it their own traditions. But the reality is I think these men are neither. I think the sad truth is that they were heretics or men that contradicted the word. Look at their claim. Their claim was that Gentile members of this church in Antioch weren't saved unless, what? They were circumcised. Basically, these Pharisees from Jerusalem come to Antioch teaching a gospel of salvation by Jesus, but through works to become a Christian. Yes, you had to accept Jesus, but you also had to practice the Jewish law. It was a (laughs) non-negotiable. And it's with this in mind that it's no wonder that we're told Paul and Barnabas had a problem with it. They had a big issue with what these men were teaching the people. We're told that they had no small dissension and dispute. That means it was a big one. The language indicates that the conversation, Paul, Barnabas, and these pharisaical Jews, the the conversation moved from peaceful dialogue to arguing. It's about to come to blows. That's what we're being told here in the passage. What they were saying enraged. Paul, and Barnabas. And why? What these Pharisees were doing was that they were tampering with the most critical issue of Christianity, the very mechanism by which a person is saved. And obviously, this particular topic is of great importance to these particular believers. Not only was this church in Antioch comprised of Gentiles, whose very salvation is now being called into question. But Paul and Barnabas, what have they just finished? They've just wrapped up their first missionary journey into Gentile areas there in Galatia. And what had they been doing? They'd been preaching the gospel, seeing converts, planting churches under a pretense. And the pretense? That it was only through Jesus that forgiveness of sins and justification might be attained. According to Luke, the leadership there in Antioch recognized that this issue needed to be dealt with. It was an issue of such magnitude that it couldn't be put off. So what do they do? They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others go to Jerusalem and discuss this particular question with the apostles and the elders. It's the context to our passage Now, before we continue reading in Acts 15, I want to point out that in Galatians 2, the first 10 verses, Paul provides his own descriptions of what we're about to read take place in the book of Acts. And I thought for context, it might be helpful to just read how Paul recounts what's going to take place before we look at the actual text here in Acts 15. Paul says, verse one of Galatians 2, we'll put it on the screen. Then after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. I also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel, which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren, Note, false brethren, we'll get to that later, secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission, not even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But for those who seem to be something, I love it, Paul's kind of sarcastic here, Those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me, for God shows no personal favoritism to man. For those who seemed to be something, they added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter... For he who worked effectively in Peter, this is the Holy Spirit, for apostleship to the circumcised, also effectively worked in me towards the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, that's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, there this church, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. Verse three, chapter 15. So being sent on their way by the church, this church of Antioch, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy among all the brethren. So we have Paul, Barnabas, From Galatians, Titus. We know Titus is with them. Also an undefined, unspecified number of believers. They're all leaving Antioch, this posse crew. They're heading to Jerusalem on their way. Geographically, they pass through Phoenicia and to Samaria, making their way into Judea. It's about a two-week journey, 300 miles. And as they're making their way, Luke tells us that they use the opportunity to visit churches, to visit their brethren. And they described... The conversion of the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas, the crew, they're recounting their first missionary journey as they're making their way, visiting these churches, expressing the joy. And guess what? Everyone within the church shared in this joy, which is important because Luke is providing us this detail for a reason. And that is the fact that though there were Pharisees that came from Jerusalem to Antioch preaching this gospel, though there was a segment that was a little upset with how the Gentiles were being added into the church, by and large, the vast majority of which saw what was transpiring, saw what was taking place, saw what Paul and Barnabas were doing as being incredible. That they rallied around it. They were supportive of it. Yes, there was some naysayers, but they were a small minority within the church at large so when they had come to jerusalem verse 4 they received they were received by the church and the apostles the elders were told that they reported all the things that god had done with them but some of the sect of the pharisees who believed rose up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of moses now once again it's important to point out the argument of those which Paul will so adamantly oppose. The very issue that historically what we know as the Jerusalem council had gathered to address. The claim of this sect of Pharisees, the claim Paul will argue against, was that it was necessary, non-negotiable, essential, that Gentiles be circumcised and keep the law of Moses if they were to be saved from their sins. Keep in mind, the issue at hand, and thus the issue the apostles will make a decision concerning, was not the existence of Christian liberty or even the nature of sanctification. The issue of concern was salvation, what it meant to be saved, what mechanism exists to be saved. You see, if salvation came through Jesus but by the law, then Paul's honest evaluation was that he would have run in vain, concluding that not even Titus, who was with him, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. This issue was monumental. If the apostles ruled in favor of the Pharisees, Christianity as we know it would cease, it wouldn't exist, it would be a sect of Judaism. Everything Paul had done would have been for naught and no Gentile would want to adhere to these particular notions of the Mosaic law. Well, we're told, verse six, now the apostles and elders, they came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, now you gotta get the scene. Everyone's together. It's a courtroom. You have the elders and the apostles and they're hearing out the oral arguments of both sides. They're gonna rule. They're allowing everyone to make their case. They're considering the arguments. When there had been much dispute, Peter decides to interject. He decides that it's time for he to weigh in on the matter and he begins, men and brethren, You know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God? By putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Now, Peter's approach here is brilliant. And you don't often equate brilliant and Peter together often. I mean, it's kind of a stroke of luck, maybe genius. We'll just chalk it up to the Holy Spirit but he's going to weigh in, he's going to interject on this issue, not by declaring an edict, nor is he even going to voice an opinion. But what Peter does is he calls God to the witness stand. In essence, Peter gives them a history lesson by explaining why the Gentiles were even among them to begin with. Why this Gentiles and Jew mixture, why it had started in the first place. And in the process, we'll see that Peter lays out five compelling points. First, Peter recounts that while he may have been the vessel to take the gospel to the Gentiles, he says that it was, look at it again, God who chose that the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. You see, Peter's point is this whole controversy. The whole controversy with with Paul and Barnabas. It wasn't Paul and Barnabas who had started it. They might have had contention with the fact that they took the gospel into Galatia, into Gentile communities, but it wasn't Paul and Barnabas' fault, nor was it even his to go to the house of Cornelius. This whole thing, this whole matter, the reason that the Gentiles were there is that God had chose for it to happen. It had been part of God's will. Secondly, Peter then says that God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. His argument is that the authenticity of the Gentile salvation Present salvation, current salvation could not be a subject of dispute since, well, the Gentiles had been filled with the Holy Spirit in the same manner as the Jews had on the day of Pentecost. Peter's like, I was there, man. I didn't want to go to the house of Cornelius, but God orchestrated this whole thing and I went. I was just being obedient. I didn't know what he wanted to do or why I was going or what the plan was, but when I was there, I shared them Jesus, and then in the middle of it, the Holy Spirit was poured out, just like it happened to us in the beginning. You see, how can we doubt their salvation when they've been filled with the Spirit? Thirdly, Peter sees this reality as further evidence that God, quote, made no distinction between Jew and Gentile when he, quote, purified their hearts by faith, by faith, underline it, by faith. Peter is emphatic that the claim Gentiles had to be circumcised, had to obey the law, had to do anything other than have faith in Jesus to be saved, well, it wasn't consistent with the precedent God had already established. Peter's like, The Holy Spirit was poured out. They were saved, and guess what? They hadn't been circumcised. They weren't obeying the law. God poured out the Holy Spirit. He purified their hearts, not because of anything that they were doing, but by their faith in Jesus alone. It's as though Peter looks at them rhetorically, and he asks, how can you claim God would now be requiring something for salvation today when he didn't do it back then? If anything, the argument of these pharisaical Jews was illogical, inconsistent, it lacked precedent. Fourthly, Peter highlights the overarching flaw in their argument. What right did these Jews have to require the Gentiles be saved through their obedience to the law when, look at it, neither our fathers nor we were able to bear that particular yoke? It's so Peter is reminding them that no man has ever been able to obey the law or earn God's favor through works. Not their fathers, not them presently. The only person that was blameless and perfect was Jesus. Peter closes his argument. He says, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. And then look at it in the same manner as they. The ultimate flaw in their argument was based in the fundamental oversight concerning the very nature of their own salvation. The only reason these Gentiles, these Jews wanted these Gentiles to obey the law, to be circumcised, is because they thought it had contributed to their own salvation. When in reality, Peter's making it clear it hadn't. There's no doubt. When Peter says, we shall be saved in the same manner as they, when those words leapt from his lips, it sent a shockwave through the room. You see, in making this statement, Peter was doing something very profound. He was elevating the Gentiles, even above the Jews, for this reason. The Gentiles, they could come to faith, They had no problems accepting Jesus because they weren't shackled with all of the religious baggage these Jews had been shackled with. The law is one of the hardest things for a man to find himself free from. Peter closes by declaring that without equivocation, the very mechanism of the Gentile salvation was the very mechanism of their own. Not one of the men standing in that room had been saved because they were a Jew, nor had they been saved because they obeyed some set of rules or commandments. They were saved, both Jew and Gentile, for one reason, and one reason alone, he says it, that it was through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's grace that brings a man to repentance, not the law. Well, we're told in verse 12 that the multitude, (laughs) they kept silent, And now they listened to Paul and Barnabas as they declared how many miracles and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. God had worked. Did you see that? See, what happens here is when Peter finishes, Paul and Barnabas jump for the opportunity. And in recounting story after story, From their first missionary journey, not to mention the incredible work that God had already done and was doing in this largely Gentile church in Antioch, they're providing further evidence aimed at substantiating Peter's argument. So Peter gets up, he calls God to the witness stand. He says, let's let God weigh in on this. And then when Peter's done, Paul and Barnabas jump in and says, this is consistent with everything we've seen take place. Well, after they had all become silent, verse 13, James answered, saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Now pause. Peter speaks, Paul and Barnabas. Now Luke tells us James takes the floor. And this is not the Apostle James as we think of, like one of the twelve. This is not the brother of John. This James is the half-brother of Jesus. Same mom, different dad. Okay. So James is the half-brother. This James had become a pillar within the church here in Jerusalem. Historically, you might, if you want to consider him, consider him the pastor of the Church of Jerusalem. He was known as Camel Knees because the incredible amount of time he spent in prayer, the incredible amount of time he spent, you see, James was a skeptic at one point in his life. I mean, imagine the difficulty of having a big brother who's God. I mean, that's tough. You want to talk about living in a shadow? You want to talk about always being compared to a sibling. I mean, James, why can't you make your bed like your brother? He spoke all things into existence out of nothing. I'm not a disadvantage here. You know what I mean? He grew up with this, like, I'm never good enough. And then we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that following Jesus' resurrection, Jesus specifically appeared one-on-one, mano-a-mano, with his brother James. And from that point forward, his life changed forever. He is considered to be an apostle, though he's not originally one of the 12. It's this James who wrote the epistle of James, the book of your Bible. And now he takes the floor with a reputation. He takes the floor as a man of honor. And he begins his argument by restating Peter's fundamental position, right? That God had visited the Gentiles for the purpose of taking out of them a people for his name. And he does this with the intention of now showing God's been on the stand. What's been happening practically confirms what God has been doing. But now James will point to scripture and show how scripture, specifically Amos the prophet, validates everything that has already been stated thus far. Verse 16, he quotes, after this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even with all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does these things. So he points to scripture. This is all scriptural. What's happening is biblically consistent. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogue every Sabbath. So after pointing to Scripture as the final arbitrator of the issue, consistent with the arguments of Peter, Barnabas, and Paul, James, as the leader, he presents the final ruling on the matter. I mean, he says it pretty declarative, right? Therefore, I judge that we. Now, this particular ruling we're going to see repeated in the next few verses. So we're going to kind of push off a detailed uh, examination of what James is saying here, the ruling in particular, for later in the chapter. Well, verse 22, it pleased the apostles and the elders and the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, Who was also named Bersabbas. This is very possibly the same man we find uh, in chapter one. Actually, uh, yeah, chapter one of the book of Acts, when they were choosing who was to replace Judas. We're told it was Matthias and Bersabbas. This might be the same guy. Also Silas, leading men among the brethren. And then they wrote this letter by them, obviously, to be delivered. So, following the decision, Luke tells us that it pleased everyone to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. You see, in order to ensure that the issue was cleared up, that the decision stated without doubt, without room for wiggle, beyond just sending back Paul and Barnabas to bring word to the church in Antioch, this council, the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem, felt it wise in addition to sending word with Paul and Barnabas to send a letter, a written document with two witnesses to confirm the very words of Paul and Barnabas and this letter, that being Judas and Silas. So this letter, let's read it. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren. To the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some... Who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore also sent Judas and Silas. Who will report the same things by word of mouth? For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well, well, farewell. Now, first, I don't know if you noticed it, but it's clear that they distanced themselves from the men who had come, those of the uh, the sect of the Pharisees who had come to Antioch preaching this heresy. Like, they rejected these men. He's like, they came to you. They've unsettled your souls. This is what they've been communicating. We didn't send them. And in doing so, what they're doing is they're distancing from the men and their message. We have heard that some who went out troubled you. We gave no such commandment. So what they've been teaching you, we don't concur with. Secondly, If you look at it, by now aligning themselves with Paul and Barnabas. So they distance themselves with those from the sect of the Pharisees, but they align themselves with Paul and Barnabas. And in doing so, what are they subsequently doing? Substantiating, confirming their message. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. I like this phrase, men who have risked their lives, literally, who have laid down their lives for the name of Jesus knowing that Paul and Barnabas had been under attack, had been publicly questioned in Antioch, the apostles go above and beyond simply expressing respect and admiration for Paul and Barnabas by showing admiration. And their underlying point is that what they have been teaching, we totally support. So we distance ourselves from those of the sect of the Pharisees to make sure you know we're not in line with their message that salvation comes in any other way. We appreciate Paul and Barnabas and we're aligning ourselves with them so that their message is confirmed, validated. We're behind them. Salvation only comes by faith in Jesus through the grace of God alone. But then the apostles do something really weird, fascinating. As a matter of fact, it's it's a subject of much debate, but they close their letter by requesting that the brethren of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia abstain from four specific things. From things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Now before I attempt to explain why the apostles would make this particular request, I think it's important for us to make three observations that kind of set the stage for what I think is really being communicated. First observation about this letter This particular instruction was clearly given to specific churches and specific areas during a specific time. The churches in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, right? The Gentiles and those particular cities. See, I think in some regards, we make an error when applying this passage because we we do it universally when it's been written very specifically. Second observation. The four things that are listed by the apostles that they should abstain from all relate to a set of ceremonial laws that are laid out in Leviticus 17 and 18, which would be laws totally foreign to the Gentile mind. The first three instructions all deal with dietary restrictions. The Jews were prohibited from eating meat that had been sacrificed in the worship of a pagan idol and they were required to only eat meat that was considered kosher or clean. That means that they couldn't eat meat that had blood in it or meat that had been strangled. Very particular set of dietary restrictions laid out for the Jews in Leviticus 17 and 18. And in regards to sexual immorality within this context of the law, it is likely that what the apostles are referencing was not... uh, in regards to like relations within marriage or even relations outside of marriage, like abstain from sexual immorality, but rather that they're, that they're laying out a prohibition against certain marital practices accepted in the first century that were outlawed in the law, that being mainly intermarrying within your family. It was a common practice within the first century. Just look at how the Romans... Uh, handled it. So they're saying within the context of Leviticus, follow these dietary guidelines laid out in the law. These simple things, idols, blood, strangulation. In regards to sexual immorality, like don't marry your sister, don't marry your brother. Like it's really not that big of a deal. Now, the third observation is that the language used in the letter indicates that these four instructions were presented as recommendations. They were suggestions, not a mandate. They are not issuing a law or an edict. The apostles have already made it clear that no one, Jew or Gentile, was bound by the Mosaic law. We're free from the law. We're found and we live and we abide in grace. However, they do express that if you keep yourselves from these things, you would do well. It'd be good for you to do this. If you don't want to, okay. But we would prefer it if you did. Now here's the question of controversy in regards to this passage. Why did the apostles deem it necessary these Gentile Christians abstain from these things? Now there are some who believe the exhortation was aimed at maintaining unity within a group of interracial churches. Churches that were comprised of both Jews and Gentile believers. Many will point to this passage and say, hey, you need to lay aside certain liberties just like these Gentiles were exhorted to do so you don't cause other Christian brethren to stumble or to enter into sin. But I don't believe that that's the case at all. I don't think this passage has anything to do with liberty in that regard. First of all, the belief that the apostles were telling these Gentile believers to forgo the freedom to eat what they wanted and to adhere to now specific Jewish dietary restrictions so as not to cause Jewish brethren to stumble, that idea that that's the purpose behind it, you know, that wasn't held by the receivers of the letter. The believers in Antioch who received the letter to whom the letter was written did not believe that what they were being asked to do was to forgo certain ways of eating, to obey these certain dietary restrictions for the purpose of Jewish Christians. See, the Apostle Paul even adamantly rejects that notion as well. While we'll place this event in context come next Sunday, what's important to understand is that just like two or three weeks later, Paul, Barnabas, Silas. They go back to Antioch. They carry this letter. Couple weeks after the fact, Peter follows them to Antioch. And Paul says what happens. Galatians 2, verses 11 and 13. And look at it. He says that when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. Because he was to be blamed. Why? For before certain men came from James, Peter would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew. And he separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Did you catch that? The issue wasn't that Gentile believers were eating as they always had, while Jewish believers remained kosher. That wasn't Paul's contention. It would appear, according to Galatians 2, that even after receiving this letter from the apostles, that each group within the church, Jew and Gentile, remained free to obey their own conscience concerning such matters. Gentiles were allowed to continue to eat things that had been offered to idols, things with blood in it, Thank goodness, I like it medium rare. In addition to that, things that had been strangled, the Gentiles are eating the way that they always had. And guess what? The Jews, if it's a personal conviction, they can eat in a more kosher way. It's no big deal. Both groups, according to Galatians 2, are eating how they want to. See, Paul's contention was that Peter was comfortable enjoying his liberty to eat pork, bacon, with Gentile brethren until so what happened? Until Jews arrived. You see, the burr in Paul's saddle was not disunity, the disunity that Peter was causing, or that these Gentiles were causing by eating meat. Instead, Paul's problem was hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy, not disunity. It would seem the concern, and this is my position, the concern of the apostles, the one which prompted these particular instructions had nothing to do with Jewish Christians, but had everything to do, was aimed at helping Gentile believers evangelize or reach unbelieving Jews. As demonstrated by the very nature of the original complaint and the fact that Paul and Galatians would call them false brethren, the apostles were concerned that as the church became more Gentile and less Jewish, that what would happen? Because of certain practices of the Gentiles, the Jews would become hardened to the gospel. The church would have less appeal to the Jew. See, the idea was that if these Gentiles would be sensitive to these four ceremonial laws whenever they were among unbelieving Jews, they would stand a better chance at effective evangelism. It's clear by Paul's earlier reaction to Peter that Jewish Christians, did they have a problem with Gentiles enjoying their liberty? Not at all. Gentiles could enjoy their liberty and the Jews could could follow their own conviction within the church. That wasn't the issue. It was what happened outside of the church. You see, the legalist problem was Peter eating unkosher. But Paul's issue was not Peter eating unkosher, but Peter being inconsistent with enjoying his own liberty. You're going to eat with these Gentiles? And then when these Jews come, you're going to abandon that? Which totally undermines the notion of this particular letter and the instructions therein being the restriction of liberty within the church. Understand, and this is important. And you know what? Truthfully, maybe a little radical. Because Christian liberty only exists because of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. To restrict this liberty in any way is to undermine the very nature of grace itself. The limitation of Christian liberty should never be a matter of maintaining unity within a group of believers, within a church who's all been saved by grace. But laying aside liberty should rather be a concession a Christian makes with the purpose of reaching the lost or those who are not saved, those who don't understand grace yet. Realize if you heap your personal conviction onto another believer, something not mandated in this book, You're restricting what Jesus died to provide us all. How dare you? That's what Paul's saying. That's Paul's position. However, if your liberty restricts your ability to reach a group of unsaved people, someone God has called you to reach, well, I would echo what the apostles say. You would do well to lay aside that liberty. Laying aside liberty is about reaching the lost, not about maintaining unity. And you know what? I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but this will clarify something that happens in the next passage that would, in any other ways, leave you kind of scratching your head. Because after all of this, Paul takes this letter into his second missionary journey to share with the churches he's planted. And in doing so, run a, runs across a young man in Lystra of great reputation, a Gentile named Timothy. Timothy who wants to join Paul, of whom Paul wants him to join as they continue onward. But check it out. Paul looking at a Gentile, that being Timothy, knowing that as he travels, he wants to reach the lost nation of Israel. He wants to reach unbelieving Jews, that he would begin every missionary journey starting in the synagogue. What does he do? After fighting so adamantly about Gentiles not being required to be circumcised, Saying that it has nothing to do with it at all. What does Paul do? He says, Timothy, if you want to come with me to reach lost Jews, you got to be circumcised. Because if you're not, they'll never hear you. You have to lay aside a liberty for what purpose? Maintaining Christian unity? Not stumbling a brethren? No, reaching someone that needs Jesus. You see, I believe that the entire debate concerning Christian liberty gains incredible clarity when we understand the only biblical limitation occurs for the benefit of the lost and not for the maintaining of church unity. One of the biggest passages in regards to Christian liberty we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I want to illustrate how this idea changes the way that we should look at passages like this. Let me read you the passage and point out a couple things. Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness." if any of, and and look at it, if any of those who do not believe, so there's your context, invites you to dinner and you desire to go, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, it doesn't matter, eat whatever is set before you, ask no questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, and once again, the context is of those who don't believe, this was offered to idols. Well, don't eat it for the sake of the one who told you. And for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord in all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of? For the food over which I give thanks. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks, or to the church of God, just as I also please all men and all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that, look at it again, for what purpose? That they may be saved. Is Paul talking in this context about Christian unity or about reaching the lost? Paul will speak over and over again about reaching his brethren. But you know, he, he uses that phrase just as much to describe the lost people of Israel, his brethren, as he does about Christians. And we're told that they were sent off, came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered this letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. I would say so. They were saved and they didn't now need to be circumcised. They threw a party This is wonderful news. Thank goodness God has intervened. It's an interesting passage. It's an important passage. But I encourage you, go back through and look at all those passages that people have used with you causing another brother to stumble, which we don't want to do. But we don't limit liberty. We teach grace. We exhort to grace. I'm not saved by works. I'm saved by the blood of Christ and that alone. Amen? Amen. So Father, Lord, with those words, we want to allow that just to settle into our hearts.